word of prayer this morning. Jesus, I just thank you for your word today, God. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, it's sweet in the mouth at times and it's bitter to the stomach at times. And Lord, we want to just take in your word wholly and completely this morning, Lord. Chew it and, and assimilate it into our lives. And we pray, God, that that the written word this morning would lead us to Jesus Christ, the living word. And so, Jesus, we, we love you. We pray that, that, um, that your spirit would just anoint this time and direct this time and cause the word of God to come alive to each one of our hearts and our minds this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, first, or sorry, Second Timothy. I actually want to just jump back into chapter 1 for a second here because I think the end of the chapter sets the stage for where we're going to go this morning. And so let's pick it up at verse 15 and uh, we'll jump into chapter 2. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, from prison in Rome, you were all aware, you're, you were aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me. Among them are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him, and find, grant him to find mercy on that, from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. So here at the close of uh, chapter 1, where we were last week in this letter, the second letter to Timothy, uh, Paul is sharing, I guess you would say, disappointment um, from prison about the fact that all who were in Asia had deserted him, had turned from him. And then spe specifically, he, he mentions these two fellows, uh, Phygelus or however you would say it, Phygelus and Hermogenes, the dairy farmer. I personally prefer 2%. But, you know, uh, except for this one exception, this man Onesiphorus, or however you say his name, who had traveled to Rome, uh, he had, this, this fellow had been a faithful friend, faithful servant of Paul, had traveled to Rome, had sought Paul out, not knowing where he was in prison, and then ministered to his needs. And so there's just kind of, in general, as we begin to jump into uh, chapter two here, the background is this, that there's this general falling away in the church of Asia from the Apostle Paul. There is this uh, increase in persecution of the church. And Paul is writing to Timothy to say, man, you, you, here's some things you can do to stay, strong, stay strong in the Lord in the midst of a collapsing society and, and culture. And he's urging Timothy not to be disloyal himself to the Apostle Paul or to the Lord Jesus Christ or to the gospel. Uh, to not let his timid personality and, and character and nature be a reason for disloyalty. And so, uh, you know, again, uh, the general theme of this letter, I would say, is this. It's staying strong in the midst of a, a culture and a society that is uh, collapsing. He says this in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... And trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now again, Timothy's got this personality, this uh, character trait that he was a, a, a timid man. 
And, you know, Paul's saying to him, look, Timothy, that your, your nature is not to be an excuse for throwing in the towel or failing to be faithful to the Lord. And so he urges him and instructs him where, as a timid person, he should find strength. He says, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In grace. I mean, we all know we've, we've been saved by grace. We know that it's the grace of God that keeps us in the midst of our salvation. But grace also supplies for us the inward strength we need when we feel like giving up. You know, you and I, I imagine, feel like Timothy from time to time. You know, maybe we look at the mirror and we say, well, I don't have the personality. Um, you know, I don't have the strength. I don't have the intellect to serve Jesus. I don't, I don't know enough. It's this or that. And, you know, every one of us can kind of resonate in some sort of way this instruction that Paul was giving to Timothy. Uh, find strength in the grace of God. And, you know, I would, I would say this, you know, look, Jesus is not looking to, to bless you because of who you are. Jesus is willing and desiring to richly pour out his grace upon your life in spite of who you think you are. He's, he's not out to bless you because of your talent or your strength or your dedication or your holiness or your intellect or whatever you think it is. Jesus wants to bless you simply because that is, his, is the nature of his character. He is a God who blesses and richly and abundantly pours out his grace. See, his motivation is not my character and his motivation is not your character. What, what motivates him is his own character and his own nature. His own glory. And he'll pour out his grace on your life for your benefit and for his glory. You know, I was thinking about, about Timothy and about quitting and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I wouldn't say that I have the nature of a quitter, just generally in life. But I was just, I was just thinking about different things. And I was reminded of this conversation that I once had with a good pastor friend. We sat down, it was years ago, about 15 years ago, I was, I was thinking about it. And, you know, he, he told me, he said, you know, I don't think there's ever a day that goes by that I don't consider quitting in the ministry, walking away. I mean, 15 years have gone by, and I remember that conversation. I remember where I was sitting. I remember the expression on his face. I remember the tone of his voice because it impacted me as a young, young pastor. You know, 15 years later, I would say I totally understand what he shared with me. Uh, but the beauty of it is, by the grace of God, that man is still in the ministry, doing the work of the gospel and serving the Lord, finding strength. At the same time, I recently heard um, Greg Glory actually, in an interview say, man, I've been pastoring my church for over 40 years, and not once ever did I consider throwing in the towel. I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Clear, honest call. You know, the same two men, the one who wants to quit and the one is totally resolved in that place of ministry, finding strength, I would say, in the grace of God. You know, John Wesley uh, traveled the roads of England by horseback for some 50 years. Sometimes he was preaching the gospel five and six times a day uh, in danger while he traveled from, you know, those who would rob him. It, you know, at times he was attacked by angry mobs was always poor, 
Sometimes when he arrived at different churches, the, the, the pulpits of those established churches would not allow him to even preach there physically. The history says he was small and that he was a weak man, but nothing deterred him from carrying out the work of the Lord once grace captured his heart. And I would say he found strength like Nehemiah in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And our strength in the Lord's work comes from that same source. It's not in our ability and what we can do for God. But as Paul said in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says to Timothy, what you've, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. See, God, God gives us ministry and he gives us gifting, not for us to keep, not for us to hoard to ourselves, uh, but for us to pass on to others. You know, an essential part of the work of pastoral ministry, as Paul is talking to Timothy here, is this, that you pass on to others that which God has committed to you. You know, one pastor once told me, I lead my church with this in mind. If I drop dead tomorrow, I drop dead. And it keeps rocking and it keeps rolling because there's people trained and ready to go and to pick up every area of work. And so Paul says to Timothy, take, take the things that you've heard from me and pass them on to others. Specifically, faithful men who will in turn pass, and instruct, pass that, those truths on and instruct others. And so, you know, this is a great passage in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 here where we see the generational work of the church. We see uh, a picture of discipleship. I love it there because in that verse is referenced four generations. The apostle Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. You know, we were talking about this last week that Timothy was a glory machine for God. Not all the personality, not this, not that, whatever. But if there was one thing that his life did, it brought Jesus Christ glory. Paul spoke of him and he said, you're a man who has sincere faith. And in our, our small group this week, in our small group discussions, we were talking about that a little bit. We were talking, the question was, you know, who had sincere faith that influenced your life for Christ? And it was cool, you know, in our group as people talked about um, family, friends, neighbors who taught them Sunday school and their little street that they lived on, aunties who influenced them, grandparents, parents, you know, different church leaders. Someone passed on to them a sincere faith in Christ. And you know, with that in mind, I, I might ask you this this morning. Who are you spiritually investing in for the kingdom of God? You know, does somebody come to mind for you? You go, hmm, yeah. Or, or is it just blankness in your mind? You know, I would say this. Who are you investing for the kingdom of God? And what does that look like? You know, do you just shoot from the hip or, or is, and try to figure it out as you go? Or is there a plan? Well, Paul gave... Paul gave Timothy a little, a little bit of a model here. He said, look, what you received from me, 
simply pass on to someone else. And that's what I could say to you. You know, maybe you don't feel like, well, I don't know how to, I don't, look at whatever you've been taught, pass on to someone else. You know, some sweet lady ran a Sunday school out of her home and made crafts on your street for kids on Saturday morning. There's nothing stopping you from doing the same. Who had sincere faith that influenced you? And how can you do the same for someone else? Someone else. Timothy was to look for men of faithful character, Paul said. Which speaks to me that there actually is a process of selection. And so, you know, it's, it's who does God want us to invest in? You know, prayerfully consider who God is calling you to spend time with and, and to invest in them as others have invested in you. See, it's the transmission of the gospel from one generation to the next. Then Paul goes on to share three metaphors of of what it looks like to serve Christ. He says this in verse 3. Sharing suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The first metaphor Timothy uses is this, of a good soldier. And Paul doesn't say, man, he, look, here's 10,000 theological reasons from the Bible on why you should be faithful, Timothy said. There's one reason. Because you have a commanding officer. Because your aim is to please him who saved you. And so like a soldier, you're, you're, the mission of your life is not self-focus or self-concern or self-interest. Your aim is to please the commanding officer. A singular purpose. A singular focus. And that focus of living... Uh, for Jesus needs to move into every area of our lives. See, the soldier has to even learn how to endure hardship for the purpose of the mission, for the purpose of pleasing the commander. You know, I can't help but think as I, uh, as I read that verse about the conditions that soldiers sometimes live in in the midst of war situations. I think of World War II and and, and trench life for some of those soldiers. Did they, did they pack it up or give in because of hardship? They, they fought for the purpose of a commanding officer or because of the, the soldier or the man who was beside them. See, just like we saw last week, part of, part of the spirit-empowered life is to let go of being ashamed of Christ and embracing a willingness to suffer for the cause of the gospel. A good soldier endures hardship to please the master. You know, it's so easy in this life to be distracted by civilian pursuits, isn't it? We gotta remember the focus, please Jesus, preserve with the attitude of a soldier. He also points to uh, a second metaphor that, uh, to have the heart of an athlete. You know, the Greek and Roman cultures are just like ours. They were into sports. You know, we just celebrated the Sochi Olympic Winter Games and Canada had a good medal hall and we maintained the ones that really matter. 
the hockey medals. And, uh, you know, the way that Canada won was by competing by the rules. You don't win if you don't compete by the rules. I remember when I was in Socials 8 at Elphinstone. We were sitting in, in, social, in our Socials 8 class, and we paused because the summer games were on, and it was uh, the 100-meter dash. And there was this great Canadian sprinter, our hopes, Ben Johnson. And as he tore across that, tore down the track and crossed the finish line, the class went nuts, all of us grade eights. Ah! And he smashed the world record and we celebrated and my teacher instantly said, that guy cheated. And I thought, wow, that's huh, interesting. And we know, you know the history of Ben Johnson, if you were alive back in those days. He was a cheater. He, he used performance-enhancing drugs, and what happened? He was stripped of the medal, a, a disgrace to Canada, Ben Johnson. And Paul's point is clear, man. You know, the Christian doesn't get to make up the rules as he goes. The Christian doesn't get to make up the rules as he pleases. God doesn't make special arrangements for different people. He doesn't grade sin on a curve. He doesn't make special arrangements for certain sin. You know, the rule for sin, any sin for those who would follow Jesus is always the same. You repent and turn from your sin, and in faith you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you got to treat it like an athlete within the structure of the rules that God has laid out. Then he uses another metaphor, the the hardworking farmer, an agricultural metaphor. You know, farmers, obviously, I mean, we know this about farmers. Their reputation is for hard work. Early mornings, long days, long seasons, hard work. They work the soil. You know, the soil has different conditions. They can't control the weather. They, they can't control many things regarding the harvest. And in our work for Jesus, you know, Jesus said, He is the Lord of the harvest. We can't control the harvest, but that does not excuse laziness, hard work. You work the soil. You do the work. You know, Paul knew the value of hard work. He was called. He was gifted. He was anointed. He was blessed, but I wouldn't say it came easy for Paul as he writes from prison. You know that Paul actually said of the other apostles in 1 Corinthians 15 that he worked harder than all of them? And the farmer, as we know, who works little and invests little in his soil and in his farm receives little. And the farmer who works hard lays the potential for the Lord of the harvest to pour out abundantly upon him. You know, uh, it's this principle, no gain without pain. That, that's, a, that's a biblical principle. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, I will never shrink back from declaring my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who concerned himself with sowing his fields and never looking at them till harvest as expect a believer to attain holiness who was not diligent, diligent about his Bible reading his prayers, and his use of his Sunday. Our God is a God who works by means, and he will never bless the soul of a man who pretends to be so high and spiritual 
that he cannot get on without those things. No pain without gain. And Paul says, that, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, the first fruits of labor belong to the laborer. You know, so don't, don't relax. You get to reap the benefit if you don't take the foot off the gas. You get the reward of laboring for the Lord. You know what I love more than I love preaching? I love to prepare for preaching. It's the highlight of my week is not right now. The highlight of my week is when I get to spend time with Jesus and to dig into the scriptures and study and pray over them and, and meditate over them and let the Holy Spirit pin me to the mat and change me. And guess what? I get the first fruits of the labor. The Lord transforms me and changes my character. And, and it's better than the teaching itself. And so he says, as you labor, you, you get to reap the benefits. Don't think that it's way out there and you're waiting for, you reap the benefits. He actually says in verse 7, think, what I, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. See, he says this, that there, there's actually a direct link between our consideration of the scripture and our understanding of the scripture. There's a direct correlation with meditating on the word of God and experiencing the blessing, God's blessing and his success. You know, the Lord said to Joshua, as he was being commissioned, in Joshua 1.8, he said, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. See, meditation... On the word of God leads to personal application and obedience. You begin to act on what the word of God teaches as you meditate on it. As you put it on the forefront of your mind. Which naturally leads to blessing in life. Which naturally leads to success. You know, sometimes we want to just read the word of God and then close it and say, Well, I didn't, I, I didn't get anything out of that. I, I don't know what the heck he was talking about. And you know what? When you do that, you won't get anything out of it. God doesn't leave the treasure laying on the floor for you to stumble around and find. The, the, the scripture tells us that the treasure is totally accessible. The treasure room is unlocked, man. It's free game. But you got to make your way there. The Bible even tells us that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Not hidden so that they're not accessible, but that's where they are. It's a secret that's been made open. And if you go to Christ, you will find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him. And the treasure room of the kingdom has an unlocked door. And the search is not because we don't know where to look it's, it's just that same principle. No gain without pain. And Jesus said, look, you seek, you'll find. You knock, and the door will be open. You ask, you'll receive. And when it comes to the word of God, discovery happens through meditation. Being filled up on the word. And that meditation leads to application, which leads to discovery. And so when we want to please the, the commanding officer, man, we got to compete according to the rules. We got to work hard. 
farm boy. <laughs> Got to stay strong in the work of the gospel. And above all, he says this in the next verse. You need to remember Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. I love that. The word of God is not bound. You know, there is a danger even in hard work. There's a danger even when competing by the rules and seeking to please the commanding officer that you get caught up in just doing the work of the ministry, doing work and service to the kingdom of God, and you forget Jesus. Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus, the offspring of David. And and Paul's saying to Timothy, in the midst of all that you're doing, Timothy, you've got to make a conscious effort to keep Christ at the forefront of your thinking. Don't allow experiences and, and work and this crowded life to to squeeze out the greatest experience of all, and that's knowing Jesus. Your indebtedness to him for the gift of salvation. See, Jesus Christ, he, he mentions two things about Jesus that, Paul's, that Timothy needs to keep at the forefront. The resurrection of Jesus and that he is the offspring of David. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not just some theological truth that we confess as a church. Oh yeah, he was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just an objective reality. It's to be a living reality for us. And if you remove the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, then there is no gospel. There is no gospel and you and I are dead in our sin and we are wasting our time this morning because there's other things we could be doing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he certainly cannot raise me from the dead, either physically speaking or spiritually speaking. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the rubber stamp on the complete victory of the cross over sin and death. And you and I need the power of God to live the resurrected life. To live the resurrected life, we need the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ at work in our hearts and in our lives. See, the resurrection and the important, the hope of the resurrection is of utmost importance to the Christian life. You know, one of the ways we remember the resurrection is the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that this morning. We think on his death. We remember his resurrection and look forward to his coming. And you know, Jesus can't return unless he was raised from the dead. Uh, Paul, Paul also told Timothy to remember that Jesus is the offspring of David. That means this. Remember, he was fully man. He was fu- Raised from the dead means that he's fully God. Offspring of David means he's fully man. It's essential to teach and to remember that truth. The deity and humanity perfect in one person. Jesus Christ. See, the significance of Jesus being fully human means this. He knows, man. 
He, he understands. He knows the human experience and the human struggle. He knows fear and he knows temptation and emotions and hopes and dreams and disappointments and victories and struggles and pressures. Jesus knows and understands what you're going through and he can relate. He can sympathize. He was tempted at all points, the scripture says, and yet he was without sin. See, Jesus lived perfectly the spirit-empowered life. And it's encouraging to know that the Savior, he knows and understands what we're going through. Those, those hopes and those fears, our longings, our aspirations to be like God and to practice holiness. He understands our, our failures and our defeats and areas of sin. And all that, and in all that, he loves us and he intends at, at the last to bring us to a heavenly home. And as Paul makes it clear to Timothy, to remember that Jesus was raised from the dead and to remember that he is the offspring of, of David, fully human, is so important. You know, I was just thinking about it. You know, it's amazing how that, you know, outside of the church, just how many religious groups go after one of those two things? The humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ, the resurrection And look, you know, without the incarnation and without the resurrection, there's no gospel. And Paul was so unwilling. You, you got to see this in this text. He said, I don't bend on this. I, I will suffer for these truths about Jesus. I will be bound like a criminal in chains for those truths. Church, I'm telling you, that is conviction. That is conviction about the gospel. That is conviction about the person of Christ. I won't compromise on the incarnation. And I will not bargain on the resurrection. I would rather die, I think Paul is saying. That is conviction. See, these are the truths by which we are saved. And these are the truths by which we are reconciled to God. And suffering or unpopularity was not going to stop Paul. He might have been in prison. He said, I might be here in prison bound with chains. But I'll tell you this. The word of God is not bound. And the gospel is not bound. And Timothy, my friend, unpopularity and suffering should not stop you from preaching the incarnate, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel to save. See, no government or authorities or skeptic or scientist or philosopher has ever been able to stop the word of God. It's unbound. But you know what hinders the word of God? An anemic church that abandons it. The, the pulpit turned into a platform of self-help. God's people... Chain the word of God rather than let the lion out of the cage. Like Spurgeon called it. It's a lion. Get out of the way, man. Just let it out. Unbound. You can't defend a lion. Let it out of the cage. Look at what he says in verse 10. 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know, I read those words, I think, man, I want to be like that. You're a dude, Paul. I want our church to be like that. He's saying this, I'll do whatever it takes. And to me, it's interesting that Paul's expression of love for God is manifest in this. He says, I'll suffer anything for the gospel. I will suffer anything so that others can come to the knowledge of salvation of of Jesus. You know, I've been reading about um, John and Charles Wesley in a book someone gave me from our church about Whitfield and I'm reading their story a little bit and been totally enjoying it. And in this chapter where I was reading this week, it was talking about them, um, John and Charles, and the influence that a group of Christians had a group called the Moravians on their lives and on their ministry and while they were wrestling through issues of salvation. The Moravian church began its heritage in 1450, way back. Uh, in the, the modern day area of the Czech Republic. The interesting thing is that s- sometime in the 1700s, around 1735, they had, they had a resurgence, like a, a bit of a revival happen among them. And they set up, get this, a continuous prayer watch for 24 hours a day. And that prayer watch lasted for 100 years. Isn't that crazy? And birthed out of that was hundreds and hundreds of missionaries. I, try, I tried looking around to, to, to see the number because I think it's much higher than just saying hundreds and hundreds. But I couldn't, I couldn't find a number. They send missionaries all over the world. I mean, you look it up online, you see the list of nations where they send missionaries. It's unbelievable. You know what the Moravian practice was when you were to head out on the mission field? They would do this. They'd build themselves a coffin. They'd pack their goods in it. And they would go for the sake of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, they left for the mission field with the intention of dying in the place where God had called them for the purposes of Christ. Look at Paul. Therefore, I will endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says in verse 11, this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. An old church hymn is beautiful. It says in verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. You know, we still have to contend with a similar type of thing which in the church which Paul is talking about here to Timothy. You, know, you meet such people in the church, they can spend time talking and arguing about Christian faith and theology and this position and that position. And, and they just argue instead of living it. Instead of living it. And I would say they're, they're not soul searching for truth. They're toying with the gospel. Speculating on really issues that are marginal. 
and they don't help themselves and they don't help others grow in the faith. You know, in the time of Wesley, there was a man by the name of Dr. Johnson. He was considered a great conversationalist, considered himself as a great conversationalist. He said about himself, I'm a man who loves to fold his leg and sit down and have a talk. And he said, for that reason, I don't understand the commitment and the purpose that drives John Wesley. He said, you know, I, 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 I hate meeting with John Wesley. He said, I, I sit down with John Wesley and he, that dog enchants me in conversation. And then he breaks off to go and visit some old woman and share the gospel. <laughs> See, Johnson was a man of talk and Wesley was a man of talk and action. And, and he changed the face of his nation for the kingdom of God because of his action. So Paul says to Timothy, he says, you do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So here we have, Paul gives us the measurement of a good worker and the measurement of a bad worker in the kingdom of God. I would say this, a bad worker is motivated with the hope of receiving approval from men. The good worker for the kingdom of God works for the approval of God, not for men. And God uh, measures out his approval based on the way the worker handles the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We're to, we're to rightly understand how the word is divided. And then you know what we need to let the word do? Divide us. It's a sword. Cut off the fat and the flesh and bring forth the work of the spirit. And as we all know, you know, this word can be handled wrongly. It doesn't just mean and say whatever you want it to say. You know, this week I did something. I, I, don't, I don't do this very often. But my buttons got pushed. And so, you know, I saw a Facebook post that was clearly attached to an article and it clearly dealt with the wrongly handling of the word of God and a twisting of the word of God, you know, for the author to make a point to their own end. And so I thought, you know what? I'm weighing in on this one this time. <laughs> Don't do that very often. And so, you know, I applied a rightly divided application of the word of God and crushed that argument, in my opinion. <laughs> and I did so gracefully and with love. And, you know, I was promptly defriended. <laughs> Delete. Look, you know, there, oh, well. It's the biggest, you know, insult of 2014. <laughs> You know what? There is a right way and there is a wrong way to divide. And when the word of God is divided wrong, usually at the heart of those decisions is desiring the approval of men. Uh, desiring the approval of culture. And I would say this. The incarnate, resurrected Jesus Christ, this gospel is dangerous. The Bible is a sword. 
And lives hang in the balance for eternity. If we want God's approval, then, then what we have in our hands this morning, we have a responsibility before our maker to rightly divide. You know, the first rule of theology, I have this written down in the back of my Bible. It's written down right in the first white page. It says, where God has placed the period, don't replace it with a question mark. That's the first rule of theology. Where God has placed the period, don't replace it with a question mark. See, Jesus, the scripture says, he's going to divide one day. He'll divide the sheep and the goats. And so church, we have a, we have a responsibility to rightly divide the word of God. In verse 16, Paul says this, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It sounds like he was doing a dissection of American talk shows or something. Verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Interesting, this first dude, Hymenaeus, is actually mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Remember when we were at the start of the year, we started in 1 Timothy, and the statement that Paul made about Hymenaeus was this, I've handed him over to Satan so that he will learn not to blaspheme. Don't know what happened, but it looks as you read this, that Hymenaeus was actually restored into the church on some point. This is a few years have gone by here, between first and second letter. It appears that he's restored into the fellowship of the body of Christ, and then a second time swerved and went off course again. Uh, as I was reading uh, through 2 Timothy, in preparation for this series, I was at, something caught my eye that I hadn't seen before, and it was this. That in every chapter, Paul lists by name two people that have gone off course. Two different guys in every chapter, church leaders, people of influence, that have swerved from the truth and gone off course. These two, Hymenaeus and Philetus, swerved from the truth regarding the resurrection, he says. Now, we already talked about the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection, but specifically, these guys messed with it in regards to how the resurrection deals with you and I. Specifically, you know, maybe they, I don't know what they taught. Maybe they taught that the resurrection of the believer is just something symbolic, that it shouldn't be taken literally. Maybe they taught that we were already living in a millennial kingdom or that the resurrection, as it says, had already come. Um, it had already occurred. Obviously, according to Paul, they were in error. And their teaching was negatively affecting the faith of people. It says they're ups you're upsetting people's faith. And so he points them out. I, you know, I don't, I don't do that, but I just think it's interesting that Paul, Paul did not shy away from naming names of leaders who had gone off course. We don't like to do that. Oh, that's, that's not good. We shouldn't judge. That's not what the scripture says. 
that's not rightly dividing the, tr- the truth to say that we should not judge. Do you know that's totally not biblical? That's not what Jesus said. He said, be careful how you judge because the measurement with which you judge, you will be measured. Look, we make judgments all day, every day, about all sorts of things. Jesus makes judgments. He didn't say don't judge. He said the measure that you use to judge will be used against you. So just be careful how you do it. Rightly divide the word. Now, Paul says he's going to go on to talk about a reward that happens in our lives when we do these things that he's talking about. And I want to take you for fun to Matthew chapter 7. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Man, I've taken you to the wrong place. Oh, there it is. Okay, cool. Of course, in Matthew chapter 7, you can see in verse 1, he says, Judge not that you not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, you will be measured too. So you've got to include verse 2 whenever you make that quote about that verse. But look at verse 24, I want to read this parable that Jesus says. He says this in verse 24. Because Paul's about to start talking about the foundation of the Christian life. And he says this in verse 24. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You know, whenever I read that and talk about that passage with someone, I ask this question, what is the rock? What is the rock in the parable that Jesus is telling? So for fun, what's the rock? Sorry? The word of God. Our reaction is we want to say it's Jesus, but that's not what Jesus says. He says the rock is the word. He hears the words and he puts them into practice. The man who builds on the sand is the man who hears the words and he doesn't do anything with it. The rock is the word. And Paul says when we rightly divide, there's a, the result is a solid foundation in our life. Check out verse 19 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, sorry. Flip back. God's firm foundation stands. And look, look at this. There's two seals on God's foundation. The first one says, the Lord knows those who are his. And the second one, let everyone who names the name of the Lord Depart from iniquity. So two seals. We know seal is a stamp of ownership. Okay? It's a stamp of the Lord's ownership. And each of these seals has two different sayings. The first one is, the Lord knows those that are his. The second, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul is quoting. In those verses, you'll see he's quoting. He's quoting from Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16 
tells the story of some men who were causing problems for Moses. They rose in opposition to him and and Paul says, that, that, here's the parallel. This is a good parallel. Hymenaeus and Philetus. And what they're doing, they're, they're, they've arisen in opposition to the gospel. Now, as the story goes in Numbers chapter 16, it's called the rebellion of Korah. If you, you recall that story, maybe you don't know it, maybe you do. It goes like this. Three guys with one ringleader by the name of Korah. With him were Ab- Abiram and Dathan. They rose up against Moses and they, they said, who are you? All of God's people are holy. Who, who, do you, who gave you the right to rule over us? And in the story, 250 Israelite families, as they're in the desert, they're in the desert making the journey from Egypt to the promised land. 250 families joined with them. And so... Moses humbly backed off and he said, well, let's lay it out before the Lord. The Lord can clarify then. And so God clarified and he said, I called Moses to lead. And so Moses said to Korah and Dathan and these families that had joined him, he said, you know what, guys, if I was, if I was one of you 250 families, I'd move away from those dudes because God's going God's to gonna do something and it'll be... And, the, you know, it's a, it's a great story to go and read. The families didn't listen. They did not listen. They, they stuck with Korah and his crew. And the Bible says that the earth opened up and swallowed up those three men with their families, their tents, all of their possession, their wives, their children, everything, and, and closed shut. That alive, they went into Sheol, the Bible says. And then fire came out from the tabernacle and consumed those 250 families that, that stood with them. And you know, the point of the story from Numbers chapter 16 is that there is never blessing in, or, or prosperity in acts of division amongst God's people. Uh, there's never blessing or prosperity in acts of division amongst the church. And you know, those two inscriptions on the foundation is the, the Lord knows those that are his, but the second inscription calls us to leave behind our sin. He says, you have to depart from iniquity. You know, sometimes we want to say, well, you know, I belong to the Lord. I, I know I'm his. I'm going to heaven. doesn't matter how I live. But according to what Paul is saying here, if someone does not have the desire if someone does not have the action to depart from iniquity, man, it's a fair question to ask. Is the seal of Jesus' ownership truly on their life? Or are they just living in self-deceit, spiritual self-deceit? See, the first seal is election, and the second seal is sanctification, to be made holy. Two sides of salvation you belong to Jesus, then you depart from iniquity and you live the separated life unto him. Paul goes on, he says in verse 20, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a vessel for honorable use 
set apart as holy, useful to his master, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. See, the message is, is this. If, if, if we want to be instruments for God so that he can use us for noble purposes within his house, then, then we have to keep ourselves from the polluting influences that you know, can infect the church through, through false teaching and through the influence of counterfeit Christians who know nothing about salvation in Christ. And, and we need to live a life that desires to be set apart, to be holy, to love the word of God, to love Jesus Christ. To spend time with him, to, to make ourselves useful for his service. Ready for every good work. So he says in verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, we, we understand this. You know, regardless of our age, we can have, youth, we can have youthful passions. And Paul, you gotta run from that. Flee it. Don't entertain it. Don't challenge it. Don't, you know, see how close you can get to the, the line. The things that you struggled with in your youth. Maybe you're still even there. Maybe you're beyond those years. So don't go there. Flee from those things. Flee those passions and pursue these godly traits. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. See, it's not just a matter of something negative. Avoid these things. He reinforces it positively. He says, turn your direction and go this way. Pursue these good things. Pursue these God things. See, church, we don't have a problem with sin. We have a worship problem. We have a worship problem. Worshiping Jesus is the solution to dealing with your sin. Did you know that? It's not self-discipline and all these things. It, it's this. You, you turn from those useful passions, but then you got to have a positive reinforcement, and it means pursue Jesus. You, you love on Jesus. You, you, you seek Jesus. Because we don't have a sin problem. We have a worship problem. And when you pursue Christ in worship, you know, not only corporately here together, but individually and, and time in the word and daily looking to uh, follow after Christ. Your desire for youthful passions will fade. God will give you victory over those things. He says in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Amazing, the devil, he sets snares for the followers of Christ to step into and Paul says this to Timothy as we wrap it up here. 
He says the servant's purpose, the, the bond slave of Christ, his purpose is not to win arguments. I mean, is that what this is about, winning arguments? He says, you're not about winning arguments. You're about winning souls for the kingdom. And when we as the church operate from a place where we're not concerned about winning arguments, but we're concerned about souls coming to faith in Christ, we help, I think, what Paul is saying here, we help open the door for God to work through us. when When we let go of that and we're concerned about souls, we help open the door for God to grant the work of repentance, Paul says, and for people to be set free. Correct, verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. Man, we're in the business of souls, church. We're in the business of souls and like, like good soldiers and hardworking farmers and athletes that don't dope, don't cheat, compete according to the rules. We rightly divide the word of truth. We cling to the truths of the incarnate, resurrected Christ. We don't compromise on the gospel, but we love people we concern for their souls. It's not about arguments and fighting. It's about loving people for Jesus and knowing Jesus. The, the, these are the instructions Paul gave to Timothy to be a good servant of the kingdom. And they work for every single one of us, don't they? And I want to encourage you, follow hard after Christ to know him. If you're only eating on Sunday morning, you should try it every day. You can do it on your own. (laughs) It's awesome. Be nourished in God's word. Be nourished in the presence of the Lord. Seek him.